We've been making our way through the Gospel of Mark during this season of Lent. What I call a divine mystery, Mark. And Mark has been written in such a way that we are forced to ask ourselves the question, who is Jesus and why has he come? Who is Jesus and why has he come? And we are also forced to ask ourselves, what does it mean for me? What am I going to do with Jesus? This is the divine mystery we are we're trying to figure out. Who is Jesus? Why is he coming? And what does it mean for me? And as the audience, we are the audience. As we're reading Mark, this gospel, from the first sentence of the gospel, we are told who Jesus is. But we quickly realize that no one else in the story knows who Jesus is. They don't get it right. They, they don't understand. We, the reader, have been given insider information on who Jesus is. But everyone else doesn't get it. They get parts of it, but not the whole story. And throughout Mark, we've been on a journey. We've talked about that. That, we, that Jesus uh, is in Galilee and he spends a lot of time in Galilee. And then he's making his way to Jerusalem. And now we finally arrive in Jerusalem, here in Mark chapter 11. It's Palm Sunday, the day Jesus finally arrives in the city. So I'm going to reread the scripture again. If you have your palm branches, you can wave them when we get to the Hosanna. And I want you to kind of picture yourself there in the, in the scene. Uh, Jesus is coming into Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives, if you can picture it. So here's the Mount of Olives, this, this hill, and then this little valley, the Kidron Valley, and then up to the, the Mount, the Temple Mount. It's less than a mile from the Mount of Olives through the little valley up to the Kidron Mountain. It says this, When they were approaching Jerusalem at Bethpage and Bethany near the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village ahead of you. Immediately... As you enter it, you will find tied there a colt that has never been ridden. Untie it, bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Just say this, the Lord needs it and will send it back immediately. They went away and found a colt tied near a door outside the street. As they were untying it, some of the, some of the bystanders said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? They told them what Jesus had said and they allowed them to take it. Then they brought the colt to Jesus, threw their cloaks on it and he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road and others spread leafy branches that they had cut in the fields. And those who went ahead and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our ancestor David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. I love this story. I love Palm Sunday. What, what is fascinating to me, though, is how Jesus enters Jerusalem. Up until this point, Jesus has tried to walk in secret. And every time he heals some, someone, what does he say to him? Don't tell anybody. Keep it a secret. You know, don't share it. And we've been wondering, wh wh why? But that ends here in Jerusalem. From here on out, he doesn't avoid the crowd or avoid the controversy. And this scene of Jesus telling the disciples to go and to, to get the cult is presenting Jesus as a prophet with power to know the future and what is going to happen. He is orchestrating his grand entrance into Jerusalem, into the city. 
Everywhere else in the gospel, Jesus has walked. Except when he's crossing the sea in a boat or walking on the water. Everywhere he goes, he's walking. But here he completes this journey from Galilee to Jerusalem, less than a mile, by riding on a colt. This is both symbolic and sacred. It is symbolic of a king or one in authority. It is sacred as it is alluding to prophecy from Genesis and Zechariah. Also, as Jesus is coming from the Mount of Olives through the Kidron Valley into Jerusalem, we're reminded of the prophecies from Zechariah and Ezekiel, these prophecies that talked about when, when God returns, what he will do as the Messiah comes from the Mount of Olives. So Zechariah 14, we read this. On that day, his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives, which lies before Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley, so that one half of the mount shall withdraw northward and the other half southward. Then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him. On that day, living waters shall flow out from Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea and half of them to the western sea. It shall continue in summer as in winter, and the Lord will become king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will become one and his name one. This prophecy from Zechariah. Prophecy is a tough thing. But in the tradition of the Jews, this prophecy from Zechariah, they believed that the Messiah was to come from the Mount of Olives. So here Jesus is orchestrating that as well. And so when we read prophecy, uh, prophecy applies to the now, something that's going on in the lives of the prophet right now. It applies to the future, and especially prophecy about Jesus. It applies to the future, and it also applies to the end times when Jesus comes back a second time. And we have to remember that it's all kind of interwoven together. So sometimes it's hard to read prophecy because of that. But we see this prophecy from Zechariah. And of course, many of the disciples, they're thinking, this is Jesus, the Messiah. He's entering Jerusalem as the Messiah, the Son of God. Here he doesn't try to stop the crowds from shouting out and crying Hosanna. We see a Jesus who is in charge of the events surrounding him. He's predicting them, directing them. He isn't the victim, but the one in authority. And the events to come will continue to intensify. And the irony of the situation and of the scenes and the true understanding of Son of God as it unfolds throughout this week, it will intensify. And what's also fascinating to me about this account from Mark as Jesus is coming into the city is what happens right after Jesus gets into the city. We cut it off right before that verse. But it's rather anticlimactic. You, you, you know, we have this scene in our head, Jesus is entering the city, we got the cloaks and the colt and the palm branches waving, and he comes in, and what does it say next? He goes into the temple, and what does he do? He looks around. He surveys it. It's late. The crowds go home, and he goes back to Bethany. That's it? Really? I was expecting a little more right then. You know, weren't you? I I would have liked something. But that's not how Mark tells it. We see Jesus going into the temple, but doing nothing. But I think it's a reminder for us. Jesus is confessed as Son of God. Not in the pomp and circumstance of riding into the city, but on the cross. 
We cannot mistake popularity and enthusiastic outbursts and upraised hands with discipleship. Jesus is Messiah in his death. Discipleship is built in suffering, not in popularity. And we have to remember that. From here to the cross, we will continue to see Jesus in charge. And so as we go through this final week, we, the next day, though, we see Jesus go back to the temple and he cleanses the temple. Remember, and he turns tables over. And the chief priests and the elders, they challenge him constantly in his teachings. But we see Jesus getting the best of them every time. Jesus even tells parables that are against the chief priests. It really angers them. He foretells the destruction of the temple. And he talks about the disciples' persecution. And then he's betrayed by Judas, one of the twelve. He celebrates the Passover with his disciples. He is arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. And ultimately he is led to the cross. What can I say about the cross that hadn't already been said? One of the cruelest forms of punishment and shame. Horrible and humiliating all at the same time. You lose all control of your bodily functions. In fact, the English word excruciating comes from the sound one makes when they hear the word cross. Excruciating. It is the, the, the jolt of that shock. That's where the word excruciating comes from. Josephus, the historian, called crucifixion the most wretched of all ways of dying. Cicero had this to say of crucifixion. Even the mere word cross must remain far not only from the lips of the citizens of Rome, but also from their thoughts, their eyes, their ears. He calls it the grossest, cruelest, or most hideous manner of execution. For a Roman citizen, the word cross was like a four-letter word. You don't say that in public. It is shameful. It is hard for me to, to grasp the thought that Jesus suffered such shame and pain. But this is the scandal of Christianity. That, the cross. That is the scandal of Christianity. It is hard for us to grasp it. It is hard for us to understand it. Our Savior died on a cross. Even the Apostle Paul had this to say about the cross. It is a stumbling block to Jews and it is foolishness to Gentiles. That says it's impossible for everyone to grasp. It is the scandal of Christianity. In fact, the Gnostics in the 2nd century, the Gnostics tried to hijack Christianity because in their mind they couldn't accept a cross. And they said Jesus must not have died on the cross. He somehow was spared of that pain, that shame, and that misery because I can't see how God would do that. And so the Gnostics made up all kinds of ideas. In fact, uh, the Gnostic Basildes invented the idea that it was not Jesus who died on the cross, but Simon of Cyrene. You remember the story, Simon of Cyrene? Remember they, they grabbed this guy out of, the, out of the crowd, Simon, and they said, here, you, you carry the, the beam that, that Jesus was carrying to the cross because Jesus kept stumbling and couldn't carry it. And so they, they made the invention, oh, Simon died on the cross and Jesus was taken to heaven because we can't stomach the idea of a cross. But Mark is showing us that Jesus' death on the cross 
accomplished the very purpose that Jesus set out to do. And the irony is thick throughout this passage. See, the, the trial that Jesus went through in his crucifixion, they are to be understood as Jesus' royal enthronement, as king. In the trial, Jesus is condemned for blasphemy by the chief priests and the elders. It is the reason he will be killed. They later hurl insults at him as he's hanging on the cross. What irony. He is charged with blasphemy, but it is the chief priests and the leaders who are blaspheming. They're the ones that are guilty. He is led as a king to the cross, but not in ways that we think a king should be led. He, he receives a placard over his head that says, the king of the Jews. He is scourged and flailed, and we see him wearing the purple robe and the crown of thorns. He even has someone carry the cross for him, Simon. He's led like a king. They even shout out, hell, king of the Jews. He's mocked as the people cry out, hell, the king of Israel. And we begin to see the irony of the situation. And we see the irony as earlier James and John in chapter 10. Remember when James and John asked, they said, Jesus, when you come to your glory, can I sit at your right and your left side? Remember that? Remember when James and John said, I want to sit, we want to sit at your right and left side. And, and Jesus says, you don't know what you're asking. You have no clue what you're asking for. And they're like, yeah, we want, we want to sit at your right and left when you come in your glory. And now we see Jesus coming into his glory. And they crucified a criminal on his right side and on his left. What does it mean to come into glory with Jesus? It means to be crucified beside him. You want to sit on my right and left? Right there. That's what it means. Okay, I'll not take that one. I wanted the other type of sit in your glory. Can we do that instead? What are we going to do with Jesus? Is this our king? Is this our Messiah? Is this the son of God? And then we hear Jesus cry out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, it's in Aramaic, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the irony is, is that the bystanders, they think that he's crying out for Elijah. Because the word Eloi and Elijah in Aramaic is one letter off. And they sound very similar in Aramaic, Elijah and Eloi. And so the people are, think that he's crying out for Elijah. Now why would he be crying out for Elijah? Do you remember the story in 2 Kings about Elijah? What happened to Elijah? He didn't die, did he? He was taken up. In glory, chariots of fire into heaven. And there was a tradition in, in, in Israel that when someone was facing persecution or suffering, that, uh, that Elijah had come and would take you into glory without you suffering. And so the people are, are, are thinking, oh, he must be crying out for Elijah to, so that he won't suffer and he can be taken into glory. No, that's not what he's crying out at all. What is he crying out? He's crying out Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It is a psalm of lament. They can't see what Jesus is doing, what he is fulfilling. And here we're getting to the end of this divine mystery that we've been looking at this whole season of Lent. You ready? As Jesus is dying, 
the centurion, the, the commander that is in charge of this whole ordeal. He's standing there. He's witnessing the whole event, and he cries out, Truly, this man was the Son of God. Up until that very moment, no human being in the whole gospel of Mark has confessed that. The centurion was the first person to confess Jesus as the Son of God. And it was in his suffering and in his death that he understood. What's even more ironic is he's an outsider. In fact, he's an enemy. That's hard to swallow. He hasn't witnessed any of Jesus' miracles. He hasn't witnessed his teachings and his parables. He hasn't witnessed Jesus multiplying the loaves and the fishes. He hasn't witnessed Jesus calming the storm. What has he witnessed? The death of a man on a cross. Something he'd seen hundreds of times. But this death was different. There was something in this death that was different than all the other deaths he witnessed before. The irony is, is that we wouldn't expect him to understand. But the mystery is that he has faith where everyone else had the signs. And he's the one who gets it right in his death. So I want us to, to step back from the story here in chapter 15 this crucifixion, and, and take a step back and look at the whole gospel as a whole again. Let's go back to the very beginning. How did the gospel begin? The beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Chapter 1-1, we get to peek into who we're talking about, the Son of God. In Mark's opening sentence, we get an inside look at who Jesus is. Everyone else in the story doesn't know. However, we, the reader of the gospel, we have to wrestle through 15 chapters to come to an understanding of what it means to be son of God. What's also fascinating to me is, is in the gospel, Jesus is acknowledged as son of God by the Father in his baptism. This is my son, I'm well pleased. And in the transformation on the Mount of Transfiguration. Who else acknowledges Jesus as Son of God in the Gospel of Mark? The demons. What do you want with us, Jesus, Son of God? Isn't that fascinating? Both the light and the dark sides of the spiritual realm understand. But now we have to decide for ourselves, what will we understand as Jesus, as Son of God? Throughout Mark, Jesus has given us evidence and hints for us to properly determine this divine mystery. In his parables, in his teachings, in his healings, in the way he lived, in the way he taught, and the ways he acted, all in sovereign authority that can only be characterized by God alone. But it wasn't until the cross when the centurion understood properly what it meant wasn't until his death. Now I think we see clearer why Jesus constantly told people not to speak about who he was. Because all speculation about his identity or why he came were premature until his death. It was in his death 
that he was fully revealed. It was on the cross that we finally see that the Son of God came to ransom his life for us. The cross is the birthplace of our faith. The centurion's confession is a saving confession of Jesus as God's Son. Here's the divine mystery. In the centurion's confession, he is saved. Not by prior knowledge of Jesus, even being close to Jesus, or his privilege or his status, but rather in an act of confession and faith. Truly, this man was the Son of God. Let us pray.